I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 14 and 15. We'll be looking at some passages from both of those. There's also a pew Bible on the end of the pew if you want to grab uh, one of those. Uh, that's helpful to you. We uh, are continuing our series through the book of Exodus. We have uh, began back in January working our way through it and have seen God's people, of course, are, have been enslaved in the land of Egypt for over 400 years. And now God is in this process through a deliverer that he's chosen, Moses, of bringing these people out, of rescuing them. Uh, all two million or so, estimated two million of them coming out. We've seen as well along the way that God had to deal with a Pharaoh who was resistant to God's will through these ten plagues. We saw God's hand of judgment, which is a, a brutal thing, a difficult thing, culminating in the judgment of the tenth plague, of the death of the firstborn. And yet at the same time we see upon all of that God's grace, number one, he gave ten opportunities along the way for Pharaoh to let God's people out. And then, of course, the, the most magnificent display, I would say, in the book of Exodus, Exodus of God's grace, that when he brings this judgment on Egypt, he provides the opportunity for all who would mark their doors with the blood of a sacrificed lamb, that they would be passed over, that they would be shielded from God's judgment. Just as today, you and I, if our trust is in Christ, can be, by putting faith in Christ, marked by the blood of Christ, the sacrificed one, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. We have seen these things building up to today. Uh, now the people of God have gone out. They're responding to seeing God's judgment, seeing God's grace. Last week we saw that they began to follow God out into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. But before they get very far, as we'll see today, they encounter probably one of the most well-known uh, issues that we would know of in the book of Exodus. They are pinned against the Red Sea with the armies of Pharaoh, including some 600 Chariots, those were the tanks of the day, headed their way, bearing down upon them. And as we'll see, once again, God will display his glory on behalf of his people, and they will be moved to praise. Just as we too, when we see the glory of what Christ has done, are called to be moved to praise, to respond to him in praise and thanksgiving. I invite you, you can remain seated this week because we're going to read a, a few different passages here. To look with me at Exodus chapter 14. I'll start just by reading verse 4 and then we'll move to the end of the chapter to a few verses and then some verses at the beginning of chapter 15 and hopefully get the whole picture in mind. Exodus 14 verse 4, God talks about hardening Pharaoh's heart that he will because Pharaoh will pursue them. And then he says this, he says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Then if you jump with me down to verse 13, look at a couple more verses. It says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. And then beginning in verse 21, 
We'll read through the end of 14 and first part of 15. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in a pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord, they believed the Lord, and his servant Moses. And then read with me their response as we think about our response to God's demonstration of his glory. Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I'll sing to the Lord, for he is triumph glorious. A horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waves are piled up. The floods stood in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I'll divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led... In steadfast love, the people whom you've redeemed, you've guided them by your strength to your abode. And then verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, there's a lot for us to digest. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our time of seeking you now, seeking to know you through your word. Father, we pray that you would meet us during this time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
When a 2007 Parade Magazine article, Parade Magazine, that bastion of English literature, actor Brad Pitt raised, if you know anything about him, a conservative Baptist, describes how he stumbled over what he calls the ego of God. Listen to what he said. Religion works. I know there's comfort there, a crash pad. It's something to explain the world and tell you that there's something bigger than you, and it's going to be all right in the end. It works because it's comforting. I grew up believing in it, and it worked for me in whatever my little personal high school crisis was, but it didn't last for me. Why? Pitt says. He continues, I didn't understand the idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I am the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed to me to be all about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. What do we do with this? What do we do with God's ego? What do we do with what we might call the God-centeredness of God, what we see in these verses described and we would describe as God's glory? It's all over the passages we're looking at. One commentator gets us started responding to Pitt's comments. He says there's reasons for the seeming egomania of God, of his demand that we embrace him as supreme and supremely satisfying. Number one, he is supremely valuable and supremely satisfying. Number two, receiving him as such is the only way then that we can find everlasting joy. And number three, Therefore, his call that we receive him in that way and recognize his glory is all about his love, not about his egomania. So what do we do with God's glory in these verses? Is it something we've got to kind of worm our way around, find a way to kind of explain and toss off to the side if we can? Uh, Is it something we're called to receive How do we deal with it? It's all over these verses. You can look with me in case you missed it as we were reading through chapter 14, verse 4. I read that verse in particular. It says God desires to get glory. He's interested in his own glory. Chapter 15, verse 1 we read, said, I will sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. And then verse 11 as well, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. God is glorious. And the scriptures here are telling us that we're not just called to sort of put up with this idea, not just called to kind of accept it, but that actually we're to be moved to embrace his glory in such a way that it moves us to a life of praise, to thoughts of praise, to actions of praise, to gathering together like this, to sing praise to everything and everything that we can do to demonstrate praise to God. 
That's the response that we're called to. We struggle with that, of course. If you want to look in your bulletin at the main idea, if you want to take notes along, you see there, indeed, because God is glorious for us, we should praise in Him. We should praise Him. We struggle with that, though, don't we? The prideful part of us, however big or small it is, however much we're wrestling against that prideful part of us or letting it perhaps run wild in our lives, that part of us does not like the glory of God. Because it means that ego is in competition with this ego. That's where the rub is. It's interesting to see as we start to look a little bit at the beauty of this, how we ought to be drawn to God's glory instead of repelled by it, that in this passage, God's glory is shown to be for us. I included that in the statement of the main idea because it's not just that we, on one hand, we're just called to praise God for his glory in and of itself. But the beautiful thing is that these verses remind us his glory is for us. He's in the business of taking his glory and showing it to us on our behalf in his rescue of his people. That's obvious in these verses. What happens if we don't embrace this glory and begin to move in a response of praise? What is the big deal? Does it really matter? How does that affect us? Well, three things I want us to talk about how we're affected, and then we'll move into some other topics. The first one is that it's not just sort of an an option for us to opt out of seeing God's glory and praising Him. If we don't do that, if we fail to do that, we're actually moving towards other things. One of those is fear. One of those is fear. If we're not seeing God's glory and responding in praise, we're actually moving towards fear. Verse 10 of chapter 14, we didn't read it earlier. But it tells us that when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. They feared greatly. We might not think about it, but if our eyes are not lifted up to glorious things of the Lord and seeing His work as glorious, then by default, all we see is the things around us that intimidate us. And we might not think that we're driven by fear. We might say, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not concerned about something in particular. But how many of the things that we pursue are driven by our fear? How much of the success that we seek in business or in other areas is driven by fear of failure? I want to be a, fi- a failure, so I've got to get success. How much of us, those of us who are here as, uh, who are parents, how much of our parenting and our treatment of our kids is driven by fear about what might happen with them rather than out of recognizing a trust in God? How much of the way that we manage and deal with our resources that God's provided for us is flowing really out of fear rather than out of trust and seeing God's glory? So fear can dominate us if we don't see God's glory and aren't lifted up to see that. That's one thing that happens to us. We're fearful. Another thing is that we can be a complaining People, verse 11 of chapter 14, all these things are kind of conveniently right in a row there, and the people of God, you can see them. It says, then they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? <laughs> that's, that's not exactly an optimistic, encouraging comment there. You know, was there no good ground for us to just die back then? They go on and say, what have you, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? We see this all over God's Word 
And so we shouldn't be surprised, uh, perhaps, to see it in our own hearts and lives. Once again, if our eyes are taken off of God's glory and all the riches of it and all the blessings that flow out of it, if we're not dwelling on that and teaching ourselves to celebrate it through praise, through a posture of praise, then we're going to become complainers. We uh, had the privilege of spending a couple days the end of this week up at uh, DeSoto State Park, the Peters family did, and we went up there, good time for the for the boys, there was only there was only one incident where they, you know, we watched them carefully for like two and a half, you know, hours during the morning. And then we got to this little creek that didn't look too intimidating. We'll let them climb up the rocks themselves. All of a sudden, they don't come back for about a half an hour. We go up and find them frolicking at the top of a 35-foot waterfall. So there was only one of those incidents, but for the most part, we were safe. But you take your uh, children to some kind of fun place like that. And you go to the trouble of packing everything up. And mom makes the sandwiches, gets all the groceries beforehand. And you go, of course, and I don't come up with all these ideas, but Patience does. She can spot an ice cream store a mile away. And so we, we, we stop at the ice cream to get a special treat. And we go out to dinner. And we, of course, get back in the van after all these treats and all these things. And what's the first question? What are we going to do next? Can't we do this? Can I play my DS? Can I do something else? And as a parent, you sort of shake your head and you wonder, you know, what, what are we doing here? Have we missed something? Is there some? And then you take a step back and start to think about how we are with the Lord. He gives us an abundance of displays of his glory all around us that are meant to move us to praise and thanksgiving. And instead we find ourselves looking away from those things, not seeing them through the lens of God's glory, And so we become a complaining people instead of a thankful people. We struggle in that way. And then the last thing we see, and this is really in this verse 14 of chapter 14, we see that not only are we fearful, not only are we complaining, but we also tend to retreat. We tend to take a step back and not want to move forward in the things that God has for us. The Lord says to to his people through Moses, he says, The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. He's going to do the work if we would keep our eyes on him. picture I have in mind here is Peter. You remember Peter was called by Jesus to be able to step out of the boat onto that water. And do you remember what happened? How was he able to walk on that water and take those steps of faith and move forward and not retreat? He he had his attention on Jesus. He was looking at the glory of Jesus. And so he was able to do something You know, imagine that feeling, walking on the top of the surface of the water. And then what happened? As soon as he took his attention away, he began to sink. So too for us, the things that God has called us to do, a number of us here genuinely, I think, want to be used of the Lord for his purposes, want to be handiwork in his hand, and it's so easy to retreat from those things when we take our eyes off of God's glory and the praise that comes from it. Okay? So those are some of the areas we struggle with that these particular verses identify. So what do we do with all of this? What do these verses tell us? Well, as you saw in chapter 15, is, you, know, you can find all kinds of verbiage like this in the Psalms and in other places in Isaiah and other parts of the Scriptures. But here's one of these early songs in the Scripture. It's a, it's a response to what God has done. It's a praising of 
Him. And when we speak, again, I want to mention, when we speak of praising, we might think of a very narrow thing. We might think of this song sheet and these people up here leading music. That's praise, and that's only what praise is. This is an important part of our praise. It's our corporate time together, but praise is really supposed to be a, a, a posture of our, our lives, an attitude of awe to God that we we walk through each day, through each minute, and it may mean we're carving out time in our day to, to spend time in prayer and just have a time of praise. It may mean points throughout the day that we just think thoughts of praise to God. The Scriptures call us to respond to what Christ has done in praise. And we don't just do it alone. We do it together with each other. And if you want to look on your song sheet uh, that we had for our, our music earlier, on the back side of there at the bottom are a couple of uh, statements. One I found from Edmund Clowney that I thought was helpful about this idea of what we're doing when we gather together with God's people in that kind of praise. He says, notice that the scripture does not say merely that we shall one day enter that heavenly assembly, but that we have right now come to it. When we worship God, we draw near in spirit to the heavenly Zion. Our praises blend with the song of the angels and the hallelujahs of those who have gone before. We're going to do the Apostles' Creed at the end of our worship service here in a few minutes, reminding ourselves that we don't just sit alone here in Birmingham in 2011 worshiping. We're worshiping together as other people throughout the world are worshiping now. And we worship with those who have gone before us, and we worship looking forward to the heavenly worship that will come to one day. That's what our praise is about. There's glory in that if we would have eyes to see it for sure. Well, why are we called to this type of praise? Just a couple of things quickly in these verses. One is that we're called to praise, we see in this song in Exodus 15, because of what God has done. It was what God has done, and then we'll talk about what about who he is. Look at verse 1 again, what he has done. I will sing to the Lord. Why? For he has triumphed gloriously. So one of the things, and we could pick out a ton in here, I'm just focusing on a few, is that he has triumphed. God is victorious. That's part of his nature. He's able to handle any situation. And, you know, from time to time, you... You get tired of hearing us preachers and teachers get up here and disparage our sort of over-enthusiasm about college sports, perhaps, or whatever athletic team that we get excited about, or that player. Certainly there's an issue of idolatry there sometimes for us that we get too excited about those things or get misdirected by those things. There's actually something really good about having a team, about having a player that you're rooting for. Because when you're doing that, you're actually, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, you know, none of us, to my knowledge, none of us here sets foot on some college athletic field. What we do when we see our team win, we have a shirt on, we have in our mind, we're identified with that team, and when they win, we win. We didn't have anything to do with it. We just sat at home and watched it on TV. But when they win, we win. They triumph, we triumph. So, too, in the Scriptures, when we see God triumphing, we triumph with Him. And the greatest effort, the greatest demonstration of His victory, if you will, we know is on the cross. What Jesus has done in 
reigning victorious over all our enemies, over sin that plagues us, over death that plagues us, over the evil one. Jesus is victorious, and we can have our hope and trust in that. So we're moved to praise, seeing that God triumphs. What else has he done? He's redeemed us. Look in verse 13 of Exodus 15. It says you've led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. That's buying somebody back out of slavery. God's in the business, not just of showing his power victoriously, but by bringing his people out. It's a glory, again, that's for us. It's directed towards us. What about who he is? Look again at verse 13. We praise him for who he is. You have led in your steadfast love. Think about the simplest, most well-known passage of the scriptures. John 3, 16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's in the business of loving. That's who he is. He's powerful as well. Look at verse 6. It tells us, we've seen it all over this passage. If you don't see God's power, we've probably got our eyes closed. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. So what he has done, who he is, are reasons we should praise him. And look at the contrast that's presented here. And we ought to just not just see the Egyptians in verse 9. We ought to see ourselves as well. I mentioned earlier, talking about this ego question of God, what's the main threat to our praise and glory in God? Take a look at verse 9, and you'll see it. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. The main competitor with us, what brings about our demise, what takes us away from praise, what removes us from seeing the glory of God, it's our own ego. That's the competitor with God's ego, and that's why we don't like this thing we call God's ego. Let's make some application of all these things as we conclude today. Obviously, I think one of the things this tells us is that when we gather together, when we're we're gathered as God's people in this kind of setting for praise or in some other kind of gathering, that our praise is not really first and foremost about us. We hope to get something out of coming, and as we're drawn up into the glory of God, we do receive something, but that first and foremost, it's about God. It's about responding to His glory and seeing it. So that's why we gather here, and that's important to remember for us in today's church culture where a lot is done kind of to make us all feel a certain way. I've got, in fact, a certain um, quote from C.S. Lewis. This is written over 50 years ago that's on your little uh, music sheet again where we put the quotes for this week. He says this. He says, feelings come and go, and when they come, a good use can be made of them. What he's saying is if you're in your you know, if you're having a personal prayer time and praying and you have a feeling, something come in you that is a desire of the Lord or knowledge of the Lord in that way, or you're in a gathering like this and you feel some of the presence of God and the reality of what he's done, fantastic. Make good use of that. Let it drive you into seeking and knowing the Lord. But he concludes with this. He says, good use can be made of them, but they cannot be our regular spiritual diet. People of God here are not talking about some way that they feel, although you certainly 
sense that they feel something. They're talking about what God has done, who God is, concrete realities, and they respond. They have no choice but to respond because of his greatness and glory. We think about that as we think about these verses. Again, we've seen this reality of God's glory and our call to be moved to a life of praise, to a demonstration of praise in our hearts, in our minds, that we begin to love God's glory and are moved by it. You may have heard the story before of the young girl that was standing outside of a church in a downtown area one day. She was a girl that lived out on the street and people who were coming into church that day dressed in their Sunday best or definitely noticed her in her uh, unkempt attire and appearance. And she was standing outside looking and kind of peering in the windows of the front of the church and a few families kind of just moved on by not knowing what to do and finally one family invited her to come on into the worship service. It was obvious that everybody around her, that this was the first time that she had ever been to a worship service. And they could see her watching and just eyes wide as could be, taking in the different things that were going on and the preacher going up here and the the ushers moving around here and all that was happening and the prayers and so forth. And in this particular church, the sermon came before the offering time. And the preacher preached a message about how we are to see God's glory and respond in praise to Him, to offer our lives in praise to Him. Folks had been kind of watching this girl the whole time. Some of them, if they were to admit, were uh, curious, but some of them also a little bit suspicious of what she was doing in this worship service. And the pastor finished his message, and they began to pass the offering plate down the aisle. They watched as... She followed the offering plate coming back to her pew further back in the church. And as it came by her, what some of them feared began to happen. She grabbed hold of that offering plate full of the money that people had given. And the person next to her was grabbing it as we do to try to move it along the line. But she didn't want to move it along the line. She gripped it with a solid grip and pulled it back away from that person got up quickly and walked out into the middle aisle of the church. The ushers, you can imagine, the deacons moved towards the door. And she stood there, took the offering plate, set it down on the ground, took one foot, stepped into it, and took the other foot and stepped into it. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we see in these verses today a demonstration of your glory. And at some levels, it's just terrifying, and we don't even understand all of it. That's true for us today as we see glorious things about you, the cross. We read in your word about your enemies, the evil one. We understand our sin and evil is at work in our own hearts and world, and So, Lord, we look and we desire at one level to see your glory, and at another level, we push back from it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to move towards a life of praise, that we'd see your glory, behold it, embrace it, and 
move into attitudes and thoughts that our, our daily lives would be filled with this, that we'd be hungry to spend regular time in the Scriptures individually, that we'd be hungry to gather together to hear more about your glory. As we praise you, as we lift you up in our thoughts, in our minds, as we sing songs to you, that our attention, our focus would be upon you. And as we do those things, we'd be lifted up greater to see you and move further away from our fears, from our complaining, from our attitudes of retreat, and that we'd be moved towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.